Welcome to another American Bankruptcy Institute podcast. I'm Sam Giordano, ABI Executive Director. More than 1.4 million new bankruptcies were filed by Americans in 2009, and this year we are on a pace to exceed 1.6 million, the largest number since the new law took effect in 2005 and the second highest figure in history. There has always been a close correlation between personal bankruptcy and debt, the same spending that fuels the national economy tends to add to household debt. This is especially true of spending using expensive credit products. Mix in our traditionally low savings rate, and you have a recipe for making families vulnerable to life's economic setbacks. Those most susceptible are likely the kind of households examined in Gary Rivlin's hot new book, Broke USA. From Pawn Shops to Poverty, Inc., How the Working Poor Became Big Business. The Timely Book is a nice complement to the rash of books covering the causes and consequences of Wall Street's meltdown. Because its hundreds of interviews with real people bring depth to the effect of lending and borrowing excesses on Main Street as well. It's a sometimes shocking expose of the poverty business aimed straight at the unbanked working poor people living paycheck to paycheck or on a fixed income. Payday lending, check cashing stores, pawn shops, tax refund processors, and rent to own may once have been considered on the fringe of the financial sector, but they are a huge industry today, as ubiquitous in inner cities and small towns as they are now powerful on Capitol Hill and in state legislatures. Gary tells this story with a journalist's eye for detail, demystifying the economics of Poverty, Inc., at the same time making human the businessmen, advocates, and those victimized by the fine print and sharp practices. He is our guest today. Welcome, Gary Rivlin, to ABI Podcast. Thanks, Sam. Now, as I understand it, you started out reasonably neutral about payday lending as a product to help people with financial emergencies. Uh, just like the advertising says, it's just a short-term loan, at least until they start churning you. Now, is that assessment true? And if so, how did your thinking evolve? Yeah, I began with the thought that your car breaks down, it's going to cost you $300 to fix, get you your job, you don't have a credit card, you don't have a rich uncle to hit up, and the payday loan makes sense. What do you do if you have no cash in your pocket and you're not getting paid the next Friday? And, you know, I was all ready to think that, hey, you know, we've been too simplistic in our view for the payday loan. Sure, it's expensive, but it's for emergencies, and it's an option that people making $20,000, $20,000 a year, they have no savings, it's hard to save any money, you're making that kind of money, uh, that this would be a good option. And then I started hanging out with the payday lenders. Then I started looking at the studies. Then I started educating myself about the payday loan. Now, the industry says uh, compare our fees to the overdraft, late payment, and penalties that arise if the consumer is unable to get the emergency loan. So the $100 payday advance with the $15 fee 
uh, 391% APR sounds horrible, but not, they say, compared to a $100 bounce check, where the NSF fees might equal a 1,000% APR, or a late credit card payment on $100, which results in a fee uh, with an APR of over 600%, or a $100 missed utility bill, which might result in uh, late and reconnect fees at uh, over 1,200% APR. So what's, what's wrong with that argument? I don't doubt if we outlawed payday loans tomorrow, if all those exemptions recaps that were granted by state legislatures, legislatures uh, were lifted, uh, or if we had a national use recap like some legislators want, and we got rid of payday loans that way tomorrow, bounce check fees would go up. Credit card late fees would go up. This would be great news uh, for, for banks. So they're right. That, you know, it, it's expensive to pay for a payday loan, expensive to bounce check, expensive to be late on I always think it's a little specious to try to attach APR to an undefined length of time. And a bounce check is taking one day or five days or ten days to spend money. I mean, a payday loan is a two-week loan. It's easier to apply to an APR. But, you know, their, their, their logic is sound. The problem uh, with the payday argument, even the Payday Lender Trade Association will tell you the average person who takes out a payday loan takes two or three months to pay back the loan. So let's use the, let's use the average payday loan. That's $300. So typically you'll be paying a $45 fee on that. So it would make sense. Pay the $45 to avoid two or three bounce check fees, and economically it's a wise decision. But two weeks hence, you owe $345. Well, the person is so desperate that they're borrowing $300 at these kind of fees. Know, the equivalent of a 391% APR, how are they going to have the extra $345 uh, on top of their other bill pay it back? So you see people in states where it's legal to uh, roll over, they just roll it over. In other states, it's like a human pinball. You go from store B to pay back store A, and then you go to store A right. and B, and you go to store C. And so the problem with the argument that it's the payday loan is economically a rational thing to do versus a, a balanced check is that even the payday loan industry will tell you that on a $300 loan, that typically people are paying $150, $200 in fees before they pay it back. And suddenly, it's not cheaper than a balance check. It's just as bad, if not worse, an option. Right. I, I think you alluded to this uh, earlier, uh, but there's a one of the studies uh, on the payday industry was done by the uh, Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Uh, and they examined the experience in Georgia and North Carolina uh, after uh, payday lending was essentially outlawed. Um, and the, the report uh, quoted, uh, Georgians and North Carolinians do not seem better off since their states outlawed payday credit. They have bounced more checks, complained more about their lenders and debt collectors, and have filed for Chapter 7 bankruptcy at a higher rate. The increase in bounce checks represents a potentially huge transfer from depositors to banks and credit unions. Banning payday loans did not save Georgia Georgian households, uh, but cost them millions in return check fees. Is that what you were alluding to earlier? Well, what you mentioned that study in particular it really wasn't by the New York Fed. It was by a researcher who does uh, work for the Fed. It wasn't like a 
artificially sanctioned Fed study. Um, but with that said, it's a well-regarded researcher, Dr. Donald Morgan. You know, there's counter studies that criticize that study, that, you know, he, he, he used data that wasn't Georgia or North Carolina specific, he used for that general area. And so, you know, this is one of these things where it comes down to dueling studies. I, I, I can point out the studies by academics or law professors uh, who point out that bankruptcies go up uh, if you take payday loans, or at least it expedites the inevitable by taking a payday uh, loan. I spent time in, in, in Dayton, Ohio, with a bankruptcy attorney who said he can't, you know, he can't tell you how many times he saw somebody, the, they're, they're starting to spiral down, and one of the common things to do is take out a payday loan, and that just gets you quicker to where you're headed anywhere, anyway, in his view. And so I'm just saying intuitively, I don't doubt for a moment that bounce check fees uh, will go up. And I just don't think that's a rationalization that we should allow payday lenders to therefore operate unchecked the way they're, the way they're operating. I'll also point out that before 1993, that's when the first payday store started operating, people got by. It, 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 you know, I mean, the payday lenders, oh, if you take this away, what option are people going to have? Well, you know, for centuries, people were, uh, were getting by. There are, it's the pawn shop. Uh, the pawn shop is a cheaper alternative than, than a payday loan. Typically, on a pawn loan, you're paying between 60% uh, APR and 300% APR, depending on what state you're in. And that might sound really high people, except compare it to a payday loan or an auto title loan, which is like a payday loan, but you're putting the title to your car uh, up, and those are typically 300, 400%. There's a few states, Missouri, where it's 650% APR on a payday loan. So, so there are other alternatives that are cheaper uh, than the payday loan, but I, I think the payday lenders are correct that there is no simple solution here. We just can't wipe away payday lenders, and therefore, the seven billion dollars that payday customers spent here in fees magically end up in the pocket uh, of customers that they'll have saved all that money. And then there's also one other data point that I think is really important. Uh, there's four states that closely monitor payday usage, and all of them include the same thing. That one in every five people, customers of payday, uh, are taking out 21 or more payday loans a year. There's only 26 opportunities to take out. <laughs> it's a lot of emergencies. <laughs> it's not an emergency. It's just right. a very expensive way right. to, to get by life. If you're taking out $500 and, you know, for the year, you're pretty much always are owing that $500, that's going to be a $1,500, $2,000 a year fee. And, you know, one out of five people, that's a large portion of their customer base, you know, who's essentially trapped year-round. Right. Um, owing money on a payday loan, the payday lenders will tell you, you know, 10 million, 14 million people a year take out payday loans. So we're talking about 2 million plus people a year. Uh, those who, of course, at least afford it, right. people typically are making $25,000, $35,000 a year, are paying, it's not in effect 400% interest, they are paying 400% interest on their money. Right, right. Uh, the churning, for sure. Uh, you profile many customers of these various risky products uh, in in your book. Uh, are they are all the borrowers uh, victims, and in turn, are all their lenders predators, or is it a little more complicated? 
Yeah, it's definitely more complicated. Once we just experienced the subprime mortgage crisis, and in fact, one of the things I write a lot about um, in the book is the origin of the subprime mortgage. It started in the inner city. It started in rural areas that had fallen on hard times, and you know the big banks, the Wells Fargo, Wachovia, JP Morgan, of the world saw how much money you know these fringe lenders were making on subprime loans, and they got into business, and it went to the middle class, and you know, it was the right. uh, what happened. And there was a lot of deception in subprime lending. There was a lot of bait and switch. There was a lot of hidden fees. There was a lot of... Uh, 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 it was not a transparent... It, it often was not a transparent transaction. That's not true on payday lending. That's not true on check cashing. That's not true on, on pawnbroking. When you go into a, a payday lending store, typically... They will post the fees. This is going to cost you fifteen dollars, mm-hmm. every hundred mm-hmm. you buy, you borrow, and you know that works out to an annual percentage rate of three hundred and ninety-one percent. It's it's fair in black and white. It's as clear as walking into a McDonald's and seeing what a hamburger costs. So people going in eyes wide open. It's not a deception. What happens is if you're desperate for money, you're desperate for money, and you're not looking at APRs. You're not looking at the fees. You want that three hundred dollars in your pocket. Now, in, in two weeks, you'll worry about uh, how, to, how to pay it back. So, you know, the customers I talked to, a lot of them were grateful. I talked to former customers who felt ripped off. Uh, my my mm-hmm. favorite quote uh, is from a woman in Dayton who said, a payday loan is a bridge gap, but the problem is the gap gets wider and wider and wider. The 300 bar you borrow now, you're oh, 345, yeah. you can't pay it back, so then you're going to own 390, and so on and so on. And so it was a mixed, mixed reaction among those who have customers. And, you know, I genuinely believe, genuinely believe that Alan Jones, who invented the modern-day payday loan industry, Billy Webster, former Clintonite, uh, he's in the right, right. Clinton 8, eight he, um, Advanced America. He, <laughs> right. He, he co-founded yeah, the, yeah. the largest uh, right. of the payday. Okay. I, I genuinely believe they started thinking that we're doing something important. We're going into communities where folks don't have many options, and we're giving them a means of avoiding the electricity getting cut off, or whatever example we want to use. But it got so competitive. You know, we, we went from 1993, virtually no payday lending stores in this country, to 2006, there were, well, by 2006, there were more payday lenders in this country, payday lending stores in this country, than there were McDonald's and Burger King combined. And they're only operating in two-thirds or so uh, of the state. And it just got so competitive that it went from meeting an emergency to creating the demand. So what you started seeing happen at the end of the 1990s and especially in the early 2000s, our stores were giving out $20 off for a payday loan, if you bring in a friend, a family member, a, a coworker, um, some of the big chains were calling you on the phone if you hadn't been in in 30 days right. or 60 right. days. Like, hey, you know, right. we're still here. You want to come in? We got it. It's like, wait a second. I thought this was an emergency right. uh, loan. You had the upsell. Right. So, oh, Sam, you're asking for $200, but you qualify for 500 And, you know, there's this one big chain in Ohio, Chexco, based in Ohio that, you know, they were instructed, uh, a manager, a former manager told me, to ask no, no less than three times 
you know, you qualify for 500. Uh, you can take that. And so that's where, in part, I'm giving you some of the reasons that made me change my mind uh, about the payday lending industry. It's, I think that the industry changed from something that might have been an important service, even if it was expensive, to something that ended up being very destructive. As you uh, pointed out both in the book and, and, and here today, there have always been pawn shops and other fringe financing options for the working poor. Uh, we have seen, obviously, an explosion uh, since then, which you document. Could part of the reason for the explosion, in addition to the causes that you cite, be a kind of uh, transformation of our society from a nation of small savers, uh, generations like my parents, for example, who rarely have ever bought on credit, uh, participated in Christmas clubs to save for holiday spending, to a nation of kind of have-it-now consumers. Uh, we used to have a savings rate comparable to disposable personal income at uh, 12% or more as recently as the 70s and early 80s. It was 25% during World War II. Now it's at or near you know, 2%, 4%. Being in debt used to be stigmatized. What has changed about our culture uh, that makes uh, this kind of financing option uh, more, uh, more prevalent? Well, I, I, that's a big question. There's you know, many ways to answer that. I mean, the great shame of all these industries I'm writing about is if people had a $500 savings account, a $1,000 savings account, they'd never go to a pawnbroker. You go to the pawnbroker when you're broke. The average size pawn loan is 90 bucks. Uh, so we're talking about people who have nothing. Payday loans, if you had a cushion of $500 or $1,000, you'd never have to pay the APR of 391%. You'd borrow from yourself, uh, essentially. One thing I think that's changed is it's broader economics that the bottom 40%, their weights have stagnated in the last 20 or 30 years, and there's been a widening of the gap, of the gap between the haves and the have-nots. So at the same time that prices are going up for healthcare, for rent, uh, for oil, uh, heating oil, you know, their wages are stagnating, and so it gets harder and harder and harder to save. And I don't think it's a coincidence that we've seen all this innovation, if you will, uh, in the property sector. Uh, we've had pawn shops for centuries. We've had check cashers since the 1930s. Rent-to-own dates back to the late 1960s. But most of these other businesses are newer creations uh, from the 80s and 90s. The subprime mortgage uh, was uh, born in the 1980s after deregulation uh, imposed by the federal government. They took away the state rights to uh, exempted the states from regulating mortgages. The prime credit card, the famous Supreme Court decision in 1978, right. that said it didn't make a difference where you as a credit card holder lived. It only made a difference where the bank, uh, credit card issuer, uh, had its base of operation. So, of course, everyone looked at how all the big banks set up operations, the Nevada or South Dakota or other places right. that didn't have the usury cap, and that gave rise to the subprime credit card, and suddenly not just the middle class consumer, but um, those damaged credit, those needing to live on the economic fringes, they had a credit card, payday loan, I mentioned, in the you know, early 
1990s, the instant tax bills. These are, you know, come in, we'll, we'll prepare your taxes, and instead of waiting for the IRS to send you a refund for two or three weeks, we'll give it to you today or tomorrow, and oh, by the way, we're going to charge a big fee that used to be, you know, 200% APR. It's been pressure on these lenders, HSBC and J.P. Morgan right. Chase, the two biggest here. Um, and now they're charging more like 60%, 120% APR. Still a big number, but better than what it was. So I think some of the answer is broader economics. I think some of the answer is deregulation. And I just think a lot of it is this attitude that, you know, just, just like the middle class wanted their flat screen TV or whatever you could put on a credit card and go into more debt, so did the, you know, the waitress making 20 grand and the warehouse workers, you know, those are more modest. Those I'm calling for before. But a generation ago, those people, or two generations ago, maybe, to be fair, uh, those people wouldn't have done that. Uh, they were debt-averse. Um, no well, amount of new products would have caused my parents uh, to go to a, uh, to a rent-a-center to buy some furniture, to get some furniture. They, they would never have done that. They would have saved for it. And, and so what is it about a cultural uh, uh, evolution um, that contributes to uh, the availability of these new products? Well, well, I'll point out that I agree with you that some of it's cultural, that, you know, if, if I had two wishes after doing this book, it's that we, we, we had an era of thrift again, and that people didn't go to the rent-to-owned store because they saw what happens when you owe too much. We as a country owe too much. Big corporations owe too much. Individuals bought on too much debt. And you saw what happened in 2008. So, yes, I wish we had an era of thrift coming out of you know, the bad uh, things that have happened in the last couple of years. I wish we had better financial education so people understood, like, you know, if you go to the rent-to-own store, it's going to cost you $1,200 for the same item that would cost you $500 if you just saved up for three or four months. Right. I do want to point out that so two generations ago, we didn't have subprime credit cards. That's an invention of the late 1980s where even those of modest means, even those with damaged credit, could get a credit card. You'll pay big fees, but you could get a credit card. Rent-to-own started in the 1960s, but didn't really get big until the 1980s. We didn't really have the option of payday uh, loans. So I think some of it is attitudes, but some of it is just opportunity, that there became these easy ways to get what you wanted. I mean, the thing that broke my heart in investigating the rent-to-own piece is, you know, what's the number one item that the rent-to-own stores are selling, and in fact, are still selling, uh, <laughs> despite uh, us being in a recession or on the tail end of a recession. Mm -hmm. It's big screen TVs. It's right, two right. flat screen. Right, I mean, it's, right. it's not bedroom sets. It's, it's right, not washer right. dryers. I mean, they sell those too. But the big money maker, uh, right. the biggest money maker for the rent to own uh, companies are, are, are TVs, and second is living room sets. And, you know, it, it's hard not to get moralistic and say, like, hey, why don't you go to the second hand store? Why don't you right. get a couch for 50 bucks or 100 bucks rather than just stunning, you know, leather right. sets? $2,000 after paying for it by the week for 18 right. months. But on the other hand, who am I to say how you should spend your money? You're a cab driver. You work really hard. You want to spend your money on a 
very expensive sofa to watch your very expensive flat screen TV that you got from a local rent center. You know, that, that is your option. That's, that's another aspect of being an American. We have that freedom to do any foolhardy thing we want to yeah. do. Well, that's a perfect segue to uh, looking ahead here. I want to uh, get your views on the new Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, uh, which will have very broad powers uh, just uh, passed as part of the new financial regulation bill, powers to protect consumers, uh, perhaps from themselves, but certainly from the tricks and traps of the kinds of industries that you examined. An independent director, large staff, large budget, extensive regulatory and police powers to uh, shut down predatory practices. We expect uh, Elizabeth Warren to run uh, the, the bureau if, if uh, she's nominated, as we expect. She's, by the way, she's less popular than you are among the leadership of Poverty, Inc. <laughs> um, oh, no, I, I, I follow their blog. I read Elizabeth <laughs> Warren. Uh, so let's assume she gets the job and assume further, uh, I think it's safe to say, that she'll never be captured uh, by uh, Poverty, Inc. What effect do you think the Bureau might have on the kinds of industries and practices that you've uh, studied? Well, it's a very powerful new agency, but there are limits uh, on what it can do. The consumer advocates wanted Ms. Warren or whoever is the name chief. Uh, to have power to cap interest rates, to create a national usury cap. Mm -hmm. uh, the Obama administration did not go along. Congress did not grant the Financial right. Protection Bureau the right to create a, a, a national usury cap. And so, you know, right off the bat, that limits what they could do. Uh, there was a, a proposal in the Senate uh, as part of financial reform, uh, North Carolina uh, wanted it to be considered, but it was blocked. It never got a hearing that would limit uh, people to fixed payday loans a year. In, in essence, take the payday lenders at their word, saying, well, these are emergency loans. Well, once you're taking out more than six a year, that's no longer an emergency. That's just a really expensive way to balance your checkbook. Um, I don't think that the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau would have the right to impose a rule like that, capping the number of payday loans at a year. Another proposal I thought was really interesting uh, is in place in Florida. Uh, Florida caps interest rates at, uh, or caps rate charge for payday loan at $10 per hundred. That's a very high uh, APR, it's 50% or so, but it's not 20%. But they also limit a person to one payday loan at a time, and, and that's a Critical. I mean, if you're, if you're owing two or three or four of these payday loans at a time, you're just thinking fast. Payday loan is no longer a license by any definition. It's just throwing so much stone they think faster. I don't think Elizabeth Warren would have the right to say you can no longer have uh, more than one payday loan at a time. So I think it's important to look at that it has all this power, but it doesn't have any new laws behind it, no new rules behind it. It's just taking the existing rules, truth and lending, and other uh, pro-consumer progressive pieces of legislation, and having that agency put the consumers first, not to their listenership, that you know, there's been plenty of agencies who have been looking at financial uh, 
scratch, but they put the safety valve at the bank right. first, right. and it's really a consumer first. So to me, the significance uh, is that somebody finally in the federal bureaucracy is looking out consumers first, whether it's $300,000 mortgages or credit cards or payday loans of a few hundred dollars, everything uh, in between. And, you know, it's been interesting for me because I've been, I, I've been following the payday loan bob, uh, and their take on it is, well, it all comes down to the regulations that are written, and even if it is an illicit warrant, there's only so much do, and it isn't the end of the world <laughs> for us. We've, we've taken other defeats, and we've survived. We'll survive that. In the consumer laws, talk to some of the consumer advocates, and they see, like, huh, wow, they can define a payday loan as predatory and therefore put the payday lenders out of business uh, simply by making the case, the regulatory case, mm-hmm. uh, that the payday loan or the check cash or whatever uh, ratchet we talked about, that is predatory. But, but so, like so many things, uh, the, the devil is in the details and maybe the fight is just beginning once, uh, once Obama named the Right. Uh, you mentioned uh, check cashing. Uh, I note uh, that uh, Walmart is now in the check cashing business in some anti-Walmart uh, precincts. This is viewed with alarm, if not outrage. Uh, but I wonder if, if, if Walmart uh, won't have the ability to use its vast power to essentially cut the rates and better the terms that are now being offered by some of the storefront outfits that you examined. Might that be just as likely a possibility? Yeah, I, I actually, I mean, yes, it's ironic that, you know, arguably the largest corporation on the planet is now in check cashing uh, business. So, some business so large can be in a business. But, you know, thinking about it, I think large is going to be a good thing. One of the shocks uh, whether you're looking at payday lending, check cash, is when a state has a cap, you can charge no more than 5% of the face value of a check, a payroll check, cash it. Guess what? Every single check casher charges 5%. And the cashing <laughs> difference for check cashers is like, well, why don't you just charge 4% and do as Walmart, which is, you know, you lose some of the profit, but you make it up in volume. And, you know, their response is always the same. We charge 5% because we're allowed to charge 5%. I mean, Walmart, um, they're talking about fees of you know, $4 uh, to cash yeah. a check, way, way, way less right. than right. You know, 5% of the face value, or New York right. State is 2%. One-third of the states have no cap. Right. Um, except the local businesses charge what they, they think is fair. So, you know, to me, there's 17 who are unbanked. They have no check account. They buy on a check casher. You know, to me, I think it's a necessary evil. I mean, what do you do? We get paid in checks in this country. You, you need to cash a check. You can outlaw the check cashers small until liquor stores and, and grocery stores will have to do it. And by the way, they'll charge you a fee. Um, and so, to me, the game is to put pressure so they charge less. I, I don't understand why I live in New York and you're not allowed to charge, I think it's like 1.8, 1.9% of 
at the face value of the check, and then check cashers in New York State are doing just fine. They mm-hmm. make their money from check cashing, they make money from bill paying, they make money from debit cards, they make money in, in, in a host of ways, and they're doing fine. And yet, go to Georgia, use the state you mentioned before, and it's a 5% right. Uh, right. cap. And, and, and so I, I have to think that Walmart in area will be good. But, you know, it's, they just moved into check cashing a few years ago, and it's about one quarter to one third of the stores that offer it. I, I'd imagine if the check cashers were on the line with us, they would say, oh, this must be a loss leader for, for, for them. It's going to put us out of business mm-hmm. because they don't mind if they lose a little money because guess what? Right. They are in the store. Right. With pockets full of cash walking around their stores, so if they make no money, losing a little money, they'll, they'll make, make up for it at the cash register. Uh, but with that said, I think it's about time there was some competition. I'd be perfectly happy if Walmart wanted to get into the payday lending uh, business. They, they, would, they would show the payday lenders how to do it as cheap as you could possibly do it. Do right. pressure right. on them to lower prices. Right. This is uh, lots of fascinating areas. Uh, you've been very generous uh, with your time. Uh, we're about out of time for today. I want to... Thank our guest, uh, Gary Rivlin, for sharing uh, lots of great insights uh, with us. Uh, continued uh, success with the book. Again, the uh, title uh, of the book is Broke USA, From Pawn Shops to Poverty, Inc., How the Working Poor Became Big Business. Thank you for being our guest today. My pleasure, Sam. And uh, we thank our audience, as always, for joining us as well. You can listen uh, or download to over 80 podcasts on our website, uh, which is at www.abi.org. Until next time, this is uh, Sam Giordano saying good day. Thanks.